0: So this morning, we're going to be in the book of Acts. I have uh, the wonderful privilege of uh, teaching our youth group and our student in our student ministries. And so in our Wednesday night service or Wednesday night ministry, we are working through the book of Acts. And a couple months ago, I shared with you a couple messages from the book of Acts. And so we're going to return there this morning. You know something about the Apostle Paul. Uh, we know many things about the Apostle Paul. We do know that the Apostle Paul traveled the world. He traveled the known world uh, at least four times. He traveled, and and, uh, after his conversion, he spent some time in Israel and then up in Troas, where he was from. Uh, Then he embarked on his first missionary journey. Him and Barnabas set sail for Cyprus, and they went up into uh, Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, spent some time there before returning to Antioch, Uh, His second trip around the world, you might say, he uh, embarked with Timothy, and they went again through modern-day Turkey up into Greece and made it all the way to Corinth, which is in in Greece there. Uh, Then he went back to Jerusalem, and he traveled again, treading much of the same ground in his third missionary journey uh, before making his way back to Jerusalem. And so uh, all the time Paul wanted to go back and visit this, visit those churches he was originally at, as the scripture says, to see how they are. That's the, the way that the scripture frames that. To see how they are. And so at some point in that third missionary journey, we don't know exactly why, but Paul had a longing to go back to Jerusalem. To, to celebrate Pentecost at Jerusalem. He wanted to go back to that mother church, you might say. And so several decades of missionary labor, labor had passed, and he longed to return to Jerusalem. Uh, he was in such a hurry, in fact, that he might have sailed past a very significant city that he had ministered to, and that city was Ephesus. We know Danny's going through the book of Ephesians right now, so we know something about Ephesus. But uh, this was a very important city to Paul. It was a very significant place for ministry. Ephesus was a very large city. It was some 250,000 people, which, okay, it's easy to throw that number out, but what does that mean? Uh, It's a large city. I mean, I think Bakersfield is 400,000 right around there. So roughly half uh, the size of Bakersfield, but I believe it was the third largest city in kind of the Roman Empire. So it was a very, very large city, and and Paul had uh, found lots of fruitful ministry in that city. Although he was forced to leave eventually, uh, there was a a great deal of good ministry he he had there. In fact, it says in Acts 19 that uh, Paul spent a total of three years in that city, but for two years, he was able to actually preach at a singular place, the Hall of Tyranius. and it says in Acts 19, verse 10, he taught there for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So you can imagine this place as kind of like a central hub where the, the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel message went out such that the text says that all, of the, all, the, all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Pretty profound statement. So lots of fruitful ministry there in Ephesus. Now, in God's providence, as, as Paul's on this third missionary journey, and he's got to get back to Jerusalem, um, he wants to celebrate Pentecost with the saints, the Lord would not have him sail past this place. And he actually considered sailing past this place because, again, he was in such a hurry to get back to Jerusalem. But in God's providence, he doesn't. And so, you know, I don't know why he didn't want to stop there other than he was in a hurry. But there, he probably, you know, for fear of maybe being arrested, I would assume. Demetrius was there, the silversmith, maybe you remember, who uh, pushed them out of the city. And so, anyway, he he doesn't stop in Ephesus, though. He actually stops in Miletus. And Miletus is a a small port city just 30 miles outside of Ephesus. And so instead of going into the city, he stops near and he calls the elders to come out to him. And so he meets the leaders of the church at Miletus, third missionary journey, on the way to Jerusalem. In calling the elders, he has an important message for them. And, And so many have called this Paul's farewell address. He's going to say farewell to the Ephesians because, well, he's not going to ever, they're not ever going to see him again. This is going to be the very last time he ministers to these folks. So if you haven't uh, already done so, I would ask you, I'd invite you to open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 20, and I'm going to read read a, a lengthy section of Scripture that accounts this farewell, recounts this farewell address. It's Acts chapter 20, verses 17 through 38, uh, I think it's page 929 in the Blue Bible. Uh, It's right in there. So uh, I'm going to summarize the passage, and then I'll go ahead and read it. This passage contains Paul's farewell address to the Ephesian elders. In this passage, Paul reiterates to them both his character and the manner in which he ministered to them. He does this because he has some difficult news to share. That the crux of this is, is Paul has some very difficult news to share to the Ephesian elders. Paul says that fierce wolves are going to come and attack the flock and divide the church. And some of these fierce wolves, and this is, this is the, the, the most challenging part of this message, some of these fierce wolves are going to come from the elders themselves. In addition, Paul shares with them that this is going to be the, the last time they see him and he's not going to return. And so this would be the very last time they see him. And so as Paul's farewell address comes to an end, the elders embrace Paul and sorrowfully send him off to continue his journey to Jerusalem. So with this summary in mind, let's go ahead and read this passage and put this in front of us. This is Acts chapter 20, verse 17. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, Behold, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who are with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we, may, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again, and they accompanied him to the ship. May God bless the reading of his word. Well, there's a lot going on in this passage. (laughs) There's a number of things that we might address or learn from this passage. There's certainly something to, to be said about what it means to be an effective pastor, uh, what it means to be an effective leader, an effective sheep, uh, shepherd. Uh, there, there are certainly elements there that we could draw out, uh, principles of leadership. We might even discover certain certain things about dangers that lurk in the church. Uh, those things could be drawn out of this passage as well. And as I was thinking about this, and we actually spent three weeks in this passage with our students, uh, you know, returning back to this passage, the, the thing that strikes me the most about this passage, when all things are considered, is the spirit in which these leaders send Paul away. There's something about the atmosphere and the air that that is contained in this farewell message that draws me to it. It's compelling to me. And so as I was rummaging through commentaries and putting together this message, I found a quote from William Barclay that I feel like that's what I was looking for. And so I'm going to read you that quote. It captures what what I thought was significant about this passage. William Barclay writes, but through all this scene, there runs one dominant feeling, and that is the feeling of an affection and a love as deep as the heart itself. That is the feeling that should be in any church, when love dies in any church, the work of Christ cannot do there than wither or fade or cannot do anything other than wither or fade. The church of Ephesus was dear to the heart of Paul because the air and atmosphere were the air and atmosphere of love. And so it's this air and atmosphere of love that I've tried to capture in, in the way that i frame framed this message, and even it comes out in the title of this message. Uh, endearing ourselves to one another for the sake of Christ. And notice I said endearing, not enduring. <laughs> I know that endearing is not a word that we use often, uh, but that's what we're after here not enduring ourselves, but endearing ourselves. And so to endear someone is to cause them to love or to like us. That's what we do when we endear ourselves to each other. We're, we're, our aim is to, to cause each other to, to grow in our affections for one another. And so Paul was able to do this. He was able to endear himself to the Ephesians. And so what, I, what I'm doing is I'm looking at this passage and I'm asking this question, how was Paul, how was Paul able to endear himself in this way? I'm interested in that. I want to know what it looks like to endear myself to you. And I want you to, to, to learn how to endear yourselves to one another. Not that you haven't figured that out, but to endear yourself to new people. Um, so th- that's the question I'm asking as I approach this passage. How was Paul able to endear himself so effectively to the Ephesians? That's our question. And if you want a thesis or a propositional statement, this is what it looks like. Obviously, there's no PowerPoint because, well, I didn't have much time. Uh, and Joel wasn't here to help. So get your pen out, okay? So here's your propositional statement. Paul's farewell address gives us eight lessons on how to endear ourselves to one another for the sake of Christ. Eight lessons on how to endear ourselves to one another for the sake of Christ. <clears throat> Lesson number one Pledge yourself to one another. Pledge yourself to one another. Verse 18. Paul says, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia. They knew how he lived. He lived before them. To pledge yourself to one another is really to commit. The idea is to commit yourself to one another. And there's no doubt that Paul had pledged himself to the Ephesians and the leaders there. In verse 18, it's clear that he held nothing back from them. He could say with confidence, you you know how I lived the whole time I was with you. His life was an open book to them. Maybe you heard of the young man who wrote a letter to the girl of his dreams. Uh, He says, my dear, I would climb the highest mountain, swim the widest stream, cross the burning desert, die at the stake for you. P.S. I will see you on Saturday if it doesn't rain. Paul wasn't like that. that. That wasn't the kind of man that Paul was. He had pledged and committed himself to these people. And and we see also that that doing this comes with some level of emotion. Uh, Committing ourselves to one another engages the emotion. Look down at verse 31. He says, Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish each one with tears. Excuse me. He admonished them with tears. His commitment to them engaged his emotions, what brings a bride and the bridegroom to tears at the wedding? <laughs> what brings us to tears when we, when, we, when, we, when we watch a wedding, but also when we're up here? Is it the gown? Is it the lights? Is it the message from the pastor? Whatever that, you know, nobody remembers that. No, <clears throat> what is it? It's the commitment. <laughs> That's what brings us to tears. You know, what's the highest point of a wedding? It's the vow. <laughs> you know, when I'm at a wedding, that's what, that's what it's all about. That's the bread and butter of the wedding is the vow, is the commitment that, the, the, that we're making towards one another. I don't have it memorized. How does it go? How does the vow go? For lesser or poorer, for richer or for poorer, till death do us part. <laughs> right, sickness and hell. I mean, that's the highest point of, of that of that event. That's what brings us to me to tears. Is that commitment that we make to to one another? That's, that's what brings us to tears. What what brings us to tears at a baptism? You know, theologically, you know, obviously the theology of the baptism is 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 rich. You know, we're dead in Christ and we're raised to new, just like he was raised from the grave. Theologically, that's rich, and there's a lot of depth to that. But that's not what we're crying about. What we're cr- crying about is the commitment, the public commitment that somebody's saying, I, I'm going to live for Jesus. That's what brings us to tears. And so when we hear someone say that, we've affirmed it. And so we're endearing ourselves to one another in watching that commitment. We're connecting ourselves to that great gospel as we're gonna see more and more as we continue. 1 Thessalonians chapter two, Paul brings this out a little bit more. 1 Thessalonians chapter two, verses seven and eight But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. You guys understand the commitment that a mother makes, that a nursing mother makes. That's a great commitment. That's the kind of uh, illustration that Paul is using, that's the way he committed to, the, to these people. He had pledged them, himself to those people in the same way, like a nursing mother. Thinking of, a, you know, what is the most dangerous kind of bear? I don't know. I don't come up against bears very often. But if you were to come up against a bear, what do they always warn you about, right? It's like, if there's cubs around, you better run. <laughs> or whatever you're supposed to do when you encounter a bear. <clears throat> well, Paul illustrates in the same way. So how do we pledge ourselves to one another? How do we endear ourselves to one, for this, one another for the sake of Christ in this way? Well, verse 18, I mean, he lived among them. We live among each other, I and mean, that's, that's where it starts. We live next to one another. And then in 1 Thessalonians, he talked about sharing our lives with one another living among each other, sharing our lives with one another. This is all a part of committing to one another and pledging ourselves to one another. One practical thought, and I'm speaking to myself here, is consider linger lo- lingering longer. You know, I know that we're busy and I know that we have things to do, but com- c- you know, consider staying longer with one another, just lingering. You know, friendships are often forged when we just linger. It's important to do that. It's a, it's, a, it's a major ingredient in getting to know one another and endearing ourselves to one another. If you're part of the body of Christ here at Rosedale, you have pledged yourself to this body. You've, if you're a member, you certainly have. If you're a regular tender, you have as well. You've committed yourself to this body. And so the challenge is to continue to pledge ourselves to one another as we share our lives with one another and we engage with one another. We endear ourselves to one another. So how do we endear ourselves to one another for the sake of Christ? Well, number one, we pledge ourselves to one another. And number two, enslave yourself to the Lord. Enslave yourself to the Lord. Verse 19, Paul writes, serving the Lord, I'll start back up at 18. You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. Now, Paul was not enslaved to money. He was not bent on enjoying an easy life. He was a slave to Christ. And that's what that idea there is, serving the Lord. Now, the modern translations oftentimes play down the idea of slavery, It's better better translated. There, he served the Lord as a slave. The idea in the in the verb there, the in the word there, is slavery. He was a slave. He was in total service to the Lord. So, how might our enslavement to the Lord endear us to one another? Well, notice he says that he served the Lord with all humility with all humility. A subservient ministry is a selfless ministry. When we act out of selfless devotion to the Lord and not for selfish reasons, we endear ourselves to one another and we prove that we're not after our own agenda. We're not after our own agenda. We're after the agenda of the Lord's or the Lord's agenda, I might say. Now we know action speaks louder than words. So how was Paul able to prove that he was a slave of Christ? How did he prove that? Well, I think part of the answer is right there in the verse. He says, "With all humility, with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews." He proved that he was a slave of, of Christ because he endeared endured, <laughs> endure, endure because he endured this time with a u, tri- tears and trials. That's what proved that he was a slave of Christ. Only a fool would endure what Paul did outside of total commitment to Christ. Paul kind of gives us a a picture of what he experienced in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. You're familiar with the list of of struggles and trials that he endured. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, he talks about great labors, uh, imprisonments, Countless beatings, often near death. Five times he received at the hands of the Jews forty lashes less one. Three times he was beaten with rods, once he was stoned. He was shipwrecked a night and a day, he was adrift at sea. He was on frequent journeys, dangers from rivers, from robbers, from his own people, from the Gentiles, in the city, in the wilderness, at sea, dangers from false brothers, in toil and in hardship through many a sleepless nights night in hunger and thirst often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure, he writes, on me of my anxiety for all the churches. So it is in this kind of trial and in this kind of suffering that Paul proves that he is a slave of Christ. Well, what does all this teach us about endearing ourselves to one another? Well, we endear ourselves to one another when we enslave ourselves to the Lord. That's the point I'm making. And we prove that we are enslaved to the Lord when we persevere through trials and tears. When we endear through, endure through suffering. And we don't always have those things in our life. And so that takes time. It takes time. Um, you, you know why spaghetti is always better the second day? You don't know why? It's obvious, right? Because it's been marinating all night. That's why. That's why it's better. So so it is with our relationships. I mean, the longer we walk together, the longer we are with together, the, the longer that those trials come into our lives, we have opportunity to to endear ourselves to one another. And our our relationships are strengthened through those moments. Think about the dearest Christian friend that you have. How was that forged? How was that made? Where did that come from? It's because you walked with each other through trials and tears. Now, I, I got an example. I'm gonna use somebody. He's not in the room, I don't think. But some months back, Danny preached a message on I think it was on depression. Not exactly, I don't exactly remember how he framed it, but it was on depression. And he had a man come before us and share his story. Do you remember that? He had Greg Root come up here and Greg Root talked about his trials. Did you feel endeared to Greg in that moment? Yeah, you did. Because Greg and Greg did this tremendous job of, of, and it was such a great picture of walking down into those trials, right? You just you're walking down into the water and it's getting deeper. and you're going through this this trial. And to hear the fact that Greg did that, and he didn't you know throw it off and, and run back, but what did he do? He trusted the Lord and he kept walking through it. And every moment as he's sharing that, you know where he's going. And, and after, as he walks down and he is experiencing what the Lord is teaching him in that moment, and then he walks back up the other side, and then he could stand before us and talk about his experience. Goodness gracious, that, that was so rich to hear his experience. Why? Well, I'm arguing here that it proved that Greg Root was a slave to Jesus, <laughs> that he wasn't going to let that experience pull him away. And, and listening to his faithfulness will endeared us to him. There's a lot for us to learn there. Go and do likewise, I suppose. Share your life with one another and walk next to each other and and, and share those experiences. And the Lord indeed will endear us to one another. So how do we endear ourselves to one another for the sake of Christ? Number, lesson number one, pledge yourself to, the, to one another. Lesson number two, enslave yourself to the Lord. Here's a third lesson. Commit yourself to the truth. Commit yourself to the truth. Verse 20, verse 20 and 21. How, how, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, Paul says, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. We read that Paul did not shrink back. He did not shrink from declaring the truth. He could not be silenced. The sense is that Paul was bold with the truth and that his preaching was complete. He didn't withhold anything. As a slave of Christ, Paul was obligated to share the truth from his master. One poignant example comes to us from Galatians chapter 2. I won't read that, but you remember the encounter that, uh, between Paul and Peter when Peter wasn't being honest with the Jews uh, who were restricting or holding back from, uh, they, were, they were showing favoritism to the circumcision party. So the circumcision party wanted to say that, oh yeah, you have to have faith in Jesus, but you also have to add circumcision. So he wasn't honest with that group. He didn't address that group. And so it says, that, it says there that Paul opposed him to his face. Paul was committed to the truth. He would even confront a fellow apostle. Actually, there's a perfect example right here in our passage of this. Uh, that's in the, the, the hard news that Paul shares with the Ephesian elders. You might imagine that, as we've discussed, Paul traveling back to Jerusalem, this would be the last time he would see these folks, the people that he loved. I think in the back of his mind, it might be easy to think, look, I, I don't want to share any hard news. Let's just make this an easy trip. But he doesn't. He shares some really, really hard news. And he does that in verse verse 28 and twenty uh, eight 29 and 30. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. That's like saying, hey, this is the last time I'm going to be with you. And oh, by the way, some of you, going to commit treason. (laughs) And some of you are actually going to draw away others, and there's going to be a schism in the church. (sighs) That's that's not good news. (laughs) That's hard news to hear. Paul's committed to the truth. He doesn't hold back. He tells them, this is coming. Now, we might be tempted to think that being so forthright with the truth might push us away from each other, but it doesn't. It doesn't here, not in this example. Commitment to the truth was a necessary element in, of endearing the love and admiration of both Peter and the Ephesian elders. For uh, Familiar with Proverbs 27, verse six. I'm sure you know this one. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. I think this passage demonstrates this. What kind of friend would you rather have? The kind of friend that lets you walk around all day with lettuce in your teeth? Right? Or the kind of friend that says, hey, you got lettuce in your teeth. I think I want that kind of friend. You? That's the kind of friend Paul was. Uh, Spurgeon writes, true friends put enough trust in you to tell you openly of your faults. Give me, a friend, give me for a friend the man who will speak honestly of me before my face, who will not tell first one neighbor and then another, but will come straight to my house and say, Sir, I feel there is such and such a thing in you, which as my brother I must tell you of. That man is a true friend. He has proved himself to be so. Paul was just such a man. He taught the Ephesians from, in public and from house to house. He did not withhold the truth, he was committed to the truth. So how do we endear ourselves to one another for the sake of Christ in this way? Well, if Paul's example means anything to to us, it means we can't shrink back from sharing truth to one another. We might ask ourselves, even now, is there an opportunity with a brother or sister to share the truth? I know it feels like we'll push them away, and we might push them away first season but faithful are the wounds of a friend it's worth doing that to endear ourselves to one another for the sake of Christ i suppose corresponding to that is just the just the idea that we also need to be the kind of people that are ready to hear that truth so so you know there's two parts of that right we need to we need to not withhold the truth and share with our brother what's on our heart in love, but we also need to walk in such a way that we're open to hear that in our life. So both both things are, are necessary. Let me give you a fourth lesson. This comes from verses 22 and 23. Bind yourself to the Spirit. Bind yourself to the Spirit. Verse 22 And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, Paul says, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. Paul says he was constrained by the Spirit and that the Holy Spirit testifies to him that imprisonments and afflictions are coming. (laughs) Literally, this says Paul was bound by the Spirit. The, the, The picture is of being chained. I don't know if there's a double entendre kind of happening here because he's saying he's, he's chained by the Spirit, but also what's coming, he's going to be imprisoned as well. So he's, he's both bound by the Spirit, but then he knows that he's going to be bound as well uh, as he suffers trials and, and uh, tears for Christ. This reveals the depth, uh, the depth of Paul's calling. It was not only that Paul wanted to serve the Lord, but that he had to serve the Lord. He was constrained or bound by the Spirit. I read of James Calvert. He was a, a pioneer missionary to the cannibals on the Fiji, uh, on the, of the Fiji Islands. And, and while traveling there, there was a, a boat captain who tried to dissuade him from going to these cannibals. Uh, he said, "'You will lose your life and the lives of those with you "'if you go to those savages.'" To which Calvert simply replied, "'We died before we came.'" That's the spirit of being bound by the Spirit. No doubt people with such calling are attracted to us. Kent Hughes writes, Undoubtedly, cheeks began to flame and eyes to gleam as Paul's comrades in arms listened to his gospel passion. The challenge here is that this appears to be something that it's passive. We're bound by the Spirit. So, So what do I do? How do I do that? How do I get the Spirit to bind me? I'm not the actor in that. And I think that the answer to that actually comes in the next verse, and I'm going to deliver it to you as our next lesson, our fifth lesson. And that's to, be, that's to dedicate yourself to the finish. Dedicate yourself to the finish. This is our fifth point. To bind ourselves to the Lord means we look away from this life and we look toward the next. It means we fix our eyes on finishing the work that God has given us to do. Look at the first part of verse 24. Paul says, but I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I might do what? Finish my course, Paul says. He was dedicated to the finish. He says he does not account his life of any value, literally not a single word. Now, if you want to know what it looks like to be con- constrained or bound by the Spirit, put that on. Consider your life not worth a word. That was Paul's demonstration. That's what Paul did. Paul is fully and immovably dedicated to finishing his course. He sees his life as a race to be run. It it, it involves total commitment. Total commitment to the task. An absolute dedication, a resolute concentration, a determined willingness to finish the race. And and Paul returns to this language a number of times. Philippians chapter 3, verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining, agonizing forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That was Paul's life. He was dedicated to finishing. Why? 2 Timothy chapter four. This is... Paul's, really his last words, this is the last letter he wrote, is 2 Timothy. Paul's nearing the end. He can see the finish line. And what does he say? I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. And not the crown of his righteousness, but the crown of the Lord's righteousness. That Paul could stand before the judge And say, Not me, Lord, his righteousness. That's what he was looking for. He was dedicated to finishing. Don't lose hope. Keep running. Keep running. He was dedicated to the finish. Here's another point, another lesson. Commit yourself to the gospel commit yourself to the gospel. This comes at the rest of verse 24. I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself, if only I may finish my course, and what? And the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. It wasn't only that Paul was dedicated to finishing his course, but he was dedicated to finishing his ministry, his service to the Lord. This was given to him by the Lord, and what, what was it? It was to testify, to bear witness to the gospel of the grace of God. Endearing ourselves to one another for the sake of Christ means committing ourselves to the gospel. Paul's example teaches us that the gospel is the glue that keeps us together. This is the glue that keeps us together. It's what binds us. It's the substance that binds us both to him and to one another. The message of Jesus And I want to be very clear, what is the gospel? The gospel is the good news that you and I can find forgiveness for sins through the death of Jesus. When you and I acknowledge our sin before God and believe that Jesus died on the cross to take the punishment for our sin, we are granted forgiveness. This is the good news. Through our belief, our acceptance that Jesus died in our place as our substitute, that's very important, As our substitute, we are adopted into the family of God. And as a family, we are united both to God and to one another. Again, that's the glue that keeps us together. This means to be committed to the gospel is to endear ourselves to one another. You might say theologically. That's the theological reality of us endearing ourselves to one another. Because we sit in the room and we, we all say, I agree to that. You know, that's what communion is. And in many ways, it's to say, it's to come together and say, amen. I testify, I agree that Jesus is my substitute. And that's why we do it when we gather together, because we're together in the, all, the, the same room, endearing ourselves to one another as we break bread and we celebrate the gospel. That's what communion is for. So that's true theologically, but practically, it's to say, God has accepted you, and so will I. So that's why the gospel being in the center is so significant. God accepted you. He died for you. So to put it negatively, who am I to reject you? If God accepted you, I have to accept you. It's true theologically, and it's true practically. So how do we endear ourselves to one another for the sake of Christ with the gospel? Well, I've already unpacked it a little bit, but verse 24, to testify to the gospel. Paul's fearlessness with the gospel proved to be very compelling. Through the public proclamation of the gospel, we win souls to Christ. Yes, we win souls. Lost people come to know Jesus through the proclamation of the gospel, but we also win, our soul, win each other when we proclaim and preach the gospel. We continually endear ourselves to one another. We identify with each other. You know, uh, why do we support a certain politician or a certain brand? Why do we do that? Well, because they share our ideals. They share our vision of the future. And so we align ourselves with those peoples, those people or, or that brand, whatever it is. Well, likewise, to hear each other testify or bear witness to the gospel moves us towards one another. As we hear the good news on the lips of our brothers and sisters... We identify with them more and more. We say in our heart, "We say in our heart, I'll vote for them, or I'll buy what they're selling." I affirm that. I want to be like that. I agree with that. We endear ourselves to one another through the gospel. C. J. Mahaney has written, "If there's anything in life that we should be passionate about, it's the gospel." And I don't mean passionate only about sharing with others. I mean passionate about thinking about it, dwelling on it, rejoicing in it, allowing it to color the way we look at the world. Only one thing can be of first importance to each of us. Only one thing can be of first importance to each of us. Only one thing. And only the gospel ought to be. That's what he says. And I agree. Lesson seven, commit yourself to God's purpose. Commit yourself to God's purpose. Here we discover for the first time that Paul will not return to the Ephesians. In fact, this will be the very last time he will be with them. And so this is a farewell address in the fullest sense. Verse 25, and now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Taking into account our previous thoughts and the commitment Paul had demonstrated to the Lord, it, it, it might surprise us that he was willing to push off. Paul's enslavement to Christ and his commitment to finishing his course and his ministry had, was pulling him towards Jerusalem. And it was pulling him towards Rome. And it was pulling him towards Spain. It was pulling him as far away as possible so he could tell the Gentiles, tell all the nations about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul couldn't stay. Paul's life constantly demonstrates a kind of holy angst, a, 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 you know, a, a holy discontentment, you might say, with with his situation. The the fact that he was always pressing forward, a pressing forward into God's purpose for his life. Uh, The commitment to God's purpose, no doubt, endeared him to the Ephesians. Knowing Paul, being a part of what Paul was about, meant you were a part of something grand. It meant you were a part of something transcendent. It was beyond him. It was a great and magnificent purpose. I love this verse in Acts 17. Paul was in Thessalonica. The Thessalonians were resisting the word after Paul was there. And some some of the Jews pulled out some of the Christians. And there was a riot, of course, and Jason. And they pulled him before the, the authorities. And I love what Acts 17 verse 6 says. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities shouting, these men who have done what? Have turned the world upside down, have come here also. That's the kind of, that's the kind of person Paul was. He turned the world upside down. I just love that phrase. I guess I have one more lesson. There's eight of them. I promised you eight, didn't I? That's the problem, right? At least you know I'm almost done. (laughs) That is an advantage. So lesson eight, and it comes to us at the very end, and it really is a summary of everything that we have uh, seen so far, and it's in verses 34 and 35. Paul says, You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who are with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. And so the eighth lesson here is to give yourselves, give yourself to one another. I think these words just summarize everything Paul's said. In the final analysis, we endear ourselves to each other by giving ourselves to God and to each other. Oftentimes, we talk about the consumer mindset. We talk about that from time to time. You've probably heard that. Consumer mindset that exists in our culture and in the church, oftentimes. Uh, You know, with all all the marketing that we are a a part of, I mean, you search something on your phone and you're just, you know, inundated with all the same kind of advertising. Is marketing everywhere. We have options galore. Uh, All this stuff around us, we're tempted to think that when we come to church, when we're a part of the church, a church should be about our preferences. Because everything out there is about our preferences. And so we come here and we think the same. This also should be about our preferences. Preaching topics, preaching styles, what we spend money on, ministries that are available, directions for ministry. We're we're accustomed to receiving the things that we we want. and So we're tempted to fall into that same um, habit when we come into the church. I believe these words challenge us to think differently about our life and purpose, though. This is a, the church is a unique place. That's an understatement. It's a transcendent place. It's, it's, it's so profound. What, what happens here? And one of those things that happens is that we walk when we walk next to one another, we die to those preferences. Because it's more better to give than to receive. We we come together to to put that away so we can serve one another. Endearing ourselves to one another is made possible when we give ourselves over to one another. And that oftentimes means giving our preferences over to one another. You probably know where I'm going for this one. Philippians chapter 2. I don't think there's a a better demonstration of what what it looks like to give than what the Lord Jesus did to us, did for us. And so in Philippians chapter 2, Paul writes, chapter 2, verse 3, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each one of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Okay, Paul, give me an example. (laughs) You want an example? Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. You can't go any deeper or there's no richer example than this. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. How did he empty himself? He took on the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So here's here's a transcendent reality that the God, the eternal God, the timeless God who was always in a perfect relationship with the Father and the Son I don't know what that looked like, but I can imagine it was glorious was always perfect, had in his mind that he didn't want to hang on to that. And so at a moment in history, Bethlehem the, the eternal God adds this to himself. He adds a body to himself. Now, marking himself for, eter- for the rest of eternity, he has a body now. And so now Jesus has a body and he's somewhere. Tangible. See, see, the, see the scars on my hands? Somewhere right now, the God of the universe is in a body. And forever, that body pictures what it looks like to give. It's an eternal demonstration for all of the rest of history that it's better to give than to receive. Because he didn't grasp on to that relationship he had, but he poured himself out. He added a human to himself himself. And, and died, not just any death, but death on a cross for us. And so like it says in Ephesians, like we just studied for the past two or three weeks with Danny, why? To the praise of his glorious grace. He write, Paul's writing to the Ephesians right there in Ephesians chapter one, three times. To the praise of his glorious grace. To the praise of his glorious grace. So that forever and ever and ever, we will stand before him looking at that crucified body, the marks of crucifixion, that will always be before us, always reminding us, not my righteousness, his righteousness. There's no no higher illustration than that. So why do we give ourselves to one another? Well, I think you can figure it out. Having delivered his farewell address, we have this great example then as this closes of what it looks like, the the conclusion, the outcome of what it looked like for, for Paul to endear himself to these Ephesians. And I'll read it and then I'll close. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all, they embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. So we started with this question. How was Paul able to endear himself so effectively to the Ephesians? How might you and I endear ourselves to one another in like manner? You have eight lessons. Pledge yourself to one another. Enslave yourself to the Lord. Commit yourself to the truth. Bind yourself to the spirit. Dedicate yourself to the finish. Commit yourself to the gospel. Commit yourself to God's purpose and give yourself to one another. Let's pray. God in heaven, we are so thankful for your word. What a tremendous, tremendous reality we have before us lord what an example in this man paul was indeed enslaved to you we feel the 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 tension in his life always pressing forward always trying to run that race always looking to finish his ministry lord all i can ask is that you would that you would set us set our hearts afire for this calling. I beg of you, Lord, that you would make me more like this man so that I would be more for you, Lord. And I pray that that would be true in all of our lives. And so as we finish today, Lord, I pray that these things would resonate and we would in fact aim to endear ourselves to one another such that we would be more for you, Lord, Uh, that we would honor you and please you and serve one another, and that you would make much of us for your sake. Lord, we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.